Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Earlier this week, Elizabeth Brunig, who is a columnist for The Atlantic, uh, was writing about where we're at as a culture right now. And Elizabeth is extremely active on Twitter. And she said something that struck me. She said that Twitter is a platform built solely for shaming and bullying others, which is a, which is a pretty shocking and a pretty stark statement, right? And she goes on to explain herself. That's why we always have a, a main guy, a person who is trending on Twitter that we're all supposed to have an opinion about. Now, you don't have to have a Twitter account or even know anything to know that that's a pretty cynical take. I mean, there's other stuff, lots of baseball scores, and some jokes on there too. But let's be honest, this, this phenomena, this sort of internet phenomena has created in us a culture where cynicism, nihilism, and resignation run rampant. The internet has delivered it to us in a unique way. And this is only made worse by the two years that we have all had together. Two years struck by uh, political unrest, by pandemic, by racial tensions. As we have gone through all of this, and it's been delivered to us by fiber optic cable, what has happened is many of us have been tempted and given in to the thought that maybe we should just resign and walk away from all of this. Maybe we just need to not think about anything anymore. Isn't there a documentary on Netflix that I haven't watched that's happy? Or maybe we'll try to go through the office for a 17th time. But for others of us, we don't check out, we don't resign. We just think that nothing matters anymore, that there is nothing worthwhile to think about or to do, and we just sort of go to nihilism. But for most of us, for most of us, I think what has grown in our hearts in the past two years is a strong sense of cynicism. We are always on guard because we believe, maybe rightly so, that everybody is running some sort of play. Everybody is trying to sell us something. I mean, just think about the last time you were contacted by somebody who you went to school with. Did they just want to reconnect? Did they just want to say hey and see how you were doing? Or did they have something to sell? You see, I'm doing it. I'm trying to tell you that cynicism is bad, but I am making cynical jokes about this. This is how deeply ingrained it is in us. And to be clear, I'm not just talking about people out there. I'm not talking about bad people out in the world. I'm talking about us, church. I'm talking about us. The reason I started with that quote from Liz Brunig is because Liz is a Christian, and the church should be a place. It ought to be a place where we go to find refuge in the storm, to find refuge from cynicism. 
And yet the church in the past few years has been rocked by scandals and podcasts about church scandals and the infighting that we've experienced all around Christianity and all of it inside the church has left us a little resigned, a little cynical. And that's a shame. That's a shame because the church ought to be our refuge. It ought to be our refuge because let me tell you something that is true and we don't talk about a lot. Life is short and life is hard. That's it. Life is short and life is hard and that's about it. So what do we do about that? If life is short, and it is, and life is hard, also true, what do we do? How do we deal with that? Well, resignation and cynicism, those are great strategies for avoiding the pain, for keeping a wall between us and feeling anything, but they are utterly bankrupt when it comes to us being able to construct any source of hope. When we stare at the brevity and difficulty of life, what are we supposed to do? Well, the psalm that we're going to look at is Moses working out precisely that question. Psalm 90. It's the only psalm that, that the book of Psalms says was written by Moses. We only have one. And, and many th scholars think that he wrote it as the people of Israel were about to go into the promised land, and Moses wasn't. Moses was going to die before they got there. And so Moses was able, just before he died, to go up on this mountain called Mount Pisgah, and he looked over the promised land before he died. And then the song became popular again almost a thousand years later. As the people faced a similar situation, the people of Israel were exiled. They were kicked out of their land by the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. This psalm again became a chorus for them, a way for them to make sense of everything that's going on. And so as we walk through this song that Moses wrote, we're going to see the short and hard nature of life as humans. And I hope you're going to be able to see yourself in that struggle. But let's listen along. Let's listen to what Moses lays out as a path away from cynicism, away from resignation, and offers us a different path forward. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand as I read Psalm 90. The words will be on the screen, or you can follow along in your own Bible. But let us hear God's word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. 
the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on us, your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Moses starts this psalm on a positive note. God has been a refuge, a dwelling place, a safe shelter for God's people from all the days past. He is the eternal God who not only formed the mountains, but he takes care of all of the creatures on the mountains. And yet he stands outside of them. He is not the mountains. He is not the waters that he has created. He is the holy God who is separate from his created thing. Moses starts by saying, yeah, this is good. God's the creator. God's the sustainer of all things. This is good. But then Moses takes a hard left turn into the bleak. He goes real quick into a little bit of what you might say is a little bit emo, a little bit dark. Because as soon as Moses establishes the eternal nature of God, he begins to contrast that with how fleeting our lives are as humans. We as humans are so fragile that we are created out of dust. And one day we are going to return to dust. This psalm is often associated with funerals and Ash Wednesday because it is a reminder that as humans, we are made of dust and one day we are going to return to dust. But God is completely different. God is not like that. He's not made of dust. He created it. And God stands outside of time in a way that's difficult for us to understand. I mean, think about it. The psalmist says, Moses says, that a thousand years are like the passing of a night watch, of a night shift at an Amazon warehouse. That might feel long if you've ever worked one, but that's what a thousand years feels like to God. It is no time at all. And you think about how difficult it is for us to conceive of a thousand years. I mean, like we've read history books. We know that a thousand years ago, it was approximately the year 1022. And we can like say that out loud. But, but think about this. How many of you know more than one of your great-great-grandparents' name? That was a hundred years ago. You don't, most of us don't even know more than one of our ancestors' names from a hundred years ago, much less a thousand years ago. Think about this. Do you know what was happening in Pinellas County a thousand years ago? The first 
humans to settle in Pinellas County came here roughly a thousand years ago. Before a thousand years ago, there were no humans in Pinellas until the Tocobaga tribes showed up. And the Tocobaga tribes settled where we're at now only a thousand years ago. And Moses says, this is like the passing of a night for God. It's as clear to him as, it was, as if it was just yesterday. God is completely eternal and we are completely fragile. There is a huge and stark contrast and Moses wants to drive this point home. He wants to lament how brief and difficult our lives are. So he compares us to desert grass. This is something that any of us who, who have a home, who make an honest attempt to keep our grass in Florida going, know is incredibly difficult. Because we got a nice rain shower, most of us yesterday, got some nice storms and the grass is looking good today, but we might not get a storm for a few more days and what's going to happen to our yard by Wednesday? It is going to be a dusty, nasty bowl filled with nothing but weeds and crabgrass. Maybe that's just me. Maybe you're better at that than me. I've seen some of your yards. Most of you are. But this is desert grass. This is the grass that grows in the land of Israel. And this is grass that's life cycle can be counted in hours, not days. It grows up in the cool morning sun through the dew. And by the time the evening comes, it is completely withered and ready to die. That's what our lives are like, Moses says. We are not a stately oak. We're desert hay. But Moses, Moses turns in verse 7 from the shortness of our lives to the difficulty of our lives. But he doesn't go where you would expect him to go. Most of the time, when we read a psalm of lament, when we read a psalm maybe of David where he is complaining, laying out his case before God on why things are not the way that they should be, there's normally a bad guy. There's normally somebody who is oppressing them. It's the nations that have risen against them. It is the people that have, that have betrayed them. But in this case, we don't have that big bad guy. Moses doesn't say, oh, it's going to be so hard to conquer the land for the people. God, would you stand down from them? The compiler of the Psalms who, who collected these together during the exile doesn't say, God, you should really strike the Babylonians and the Assyrians. No, because Moses does not see that as the main difficulty in our life. He sees something else as the main difficulty. It's not the others around us. It's not the situations that we have been put in. Our lives are difficult because we live under the watchful eye of God. The way that the reformers put this is that we live our lives quorum Dio, before the face of God. He sees our lives day in and day out. And not only does he see our lives and everything we do, when God looks at us, our hearts and our souls are laid bare in front of him. He knows not only what we do, but he knows what we think and what we wish for and desire. Our souls are an open book. And if you think about that, if you let that sink in, 
that God not only sees what you do, but sees all of the motions inside of your soul. I don't know about you, but that gives me the shivers. That gives me an uncomfortable feeling that God knows not just all the bad stuff that I've done, but everything that I've ever thought or desired, the things that we would shudder to speak aloud, the stuff that drives our guilt and our shame, all of that is out in plain sight in the eyes of God. Let me be honest. As I think about this, it's pretty terrifying that a holy God who cannot tolerate injustice or sin looks at everything that I've ever thought and everything that no one else would ever know. And that is pretty terrifying. One writer said that the Psalm 90 is like, is like Romans 1 through 3 of the Old Testament. It is an indictment that says no matter how religious or not religious you are, when you stand before God, you have nothing to bring. You are in deep need of someone to atone for your sins. Now I want to pause for a second because because I think I know what some of you might be thinking right now. I think I might be able to do just a little bit of assumptive mind reading here. Because some of you right now are thinking, hey, Justin, you, you just got back from vacation and you're showing up with some real gloomy stuff. Kind of a downer. Maybe you should have stayed away for an extra week. And like, you know, chilled out a bit more. What kind of music were you listening to while you were gone? And here's what I have to say to that. If that's what you're thinking, my first thing I have to say is, okay, yes, fair point. And the second thing I have to say is, I was listening to exactly the kind of music you would expect somebody whose first screen name on the internet was Emo Kid Woodall to have listened to. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, in all seriousness, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is an important point of the Christian faith. The idea that our souls are laid bare before the eternal God is absolutely integral to what we believe about who God is and who we are. We can hide from humans all we want. We can hide away and we can lie but we can't hide it from God. He knows. He knows all of it. He already knows it. And if that's true, then we're in need of more than just a Band-Aid fix to our lives. If he knows it all, we're in need of some sort of cosmic intervention. Because if we don't get some sort of cosmic intervention, the best we can hope for is that maybe God's grading on a curve, which he's not. That God is absolutely holy and knows us. But for those of us who are Christians, it's important for us to consider this. It's important for us to stare this truth in the face because often as Christians, we like to duck and hedge and kind of be oblique and kind of just say, yeah, yeah, I sin. 
I'm not nice to people in traffic. That's a sin. And one time, one time I slightly raised my voice to one of my children. I'm a sinner, just like you. But what we don't want to do is actually deal with the deep and abiding sin that dogs our lives. And so we reason it away. We deceive ourselves. We pacify ourselves. And Moses holds up a mirror to us and says, stare. Stare at this. Look at this. Why? He does this so that we can consider how brief and difficult our lives are. He does this to reflect on the trouble that we have caused for ourselves and for others. The way that our selfishness and our sinful thoughts and our words and actions have made a mess of our lives and the lives of others. He does this so that we will see that any thoughts that we are autonomous, that we are the captains of our fate, that we are in charge of our lives will absolutely shred away. Only God is in control. Grasp as we may, it is just him. I mean, look at verse 11. Look what Moses says. Moses makes it clear here. Who considers the power of your anger? And who considers your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses is laying out what he's trying to get us to see. That we deserve wrath. That we should consider our lives with a sober and reverent respect because of how deep God has forgiven us. Because if we don't, we miss out on something. And Moses tells us what's at risk. Moses tells us what we can miss out on if we're not willing to accurately give an accounting for our lives. And what we're not, what we're missing out on is a wise life. Moses makes it all the way to verse 12 before he asks God for anything. And what does he ask God for first? That God would teach him a heart of wisdom by teaching him to number his days. He says, look at your lives, pay attention to your lives. Because when you begin to see that your days are short and your lives are hard, we'll cry out to God because we realize that we have nothing in ourselves. We have no resources to fix a mess this big. And so he begs for God's presence. I mean, think about the era of Moses. God had brought the people by miracle out of the land of Egypt. He brought them out by his powerful hand and he killed the Egyptians in the Red Sea behind them. Think about the time of the exile where this song became popular again. God had established the kingdom of Israel, and then he had taken it away. And in both of those cases, what Moses is saying is, God, we're about to enter the promised land. Would you show back up like you did in Egypt? The exiles are saying, God, you have taken us out of our land. You've given us into the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Would you show back up like you did for Joshua? Would you please come back in? Hear our groans like you heard the groans of our mothers and our fathers. Do it again. 
Not because we deserve it. Not because you ought to do it. You see our souls. We're laid bare in front of you. Here's what we need. We need your steadfast love. Love that isn't earned. Love that isn't deserved. You know, each time that we, we baptize a kid, one of the things that we give them is a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And one of the reasons we love that is it's an incredibly simple but rich way to begin to see the gospel of Jesus Christ in every story throughout the Bible. And this idea of steadfast love comes from this Hebrew word that permeates the Psalms. The Psalms are almost all based on this word, hased. And I think the best definition of what this word means comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible, the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones translates this idea of steadfast love. She says, God rescued his people no matter what, time after time, over and over again, because of his, and here it is, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Moses takes account of his soul, lays it out before God and says, I know you know what's in here. I know you know that I deserve nothing, but here's what I'm counting on. I'm counting the kind of love that you, God, have is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's greater than any of the evil I've created that's greater than any of the darkness that I have spread. God, that's what we need. We need your faithful and abiding presence, not because of how much we deserve it, but because of your steadfast love. And he gave previews. This prayer was answered because what happened in the Old Testament, we see happen in greater and more vivid pictures in Jesus. God did answer Moses' prayer and bring the people into the promised land, but Jesus does something better. Jesus doesn't just bring us into the promised land. Jesus brings us into the kingdom of God, which doesn't just stretch from the river Euphrates to the Nile River. The kingdom of God stretches across the whole globe. God is not just making a a place for us, but a kingdom. And not only that, God restored the people of Israel to their exiled homes. He brought them back from their sojourning away. But Jesus is doing something more than that. Jesus is building a home for you. Just like we talked about with the kids in the kids sermon. John 14 says, Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a place just for you. So that when I come back, I will take you with you to be with me. Because of his steadfast love, God is not just giving us a place, but is creating for us a place that we might be in his presence forever. And he's not just restoring the kingdom of Israel. In Jesus Christ, God is restoring all things. This psalm is a sad reminder that we have a brief life to lead but it's a joyous anticipation of what we know to be true. This psalm ends in an ellipse. Uh, That's the three three dots, you know, three periods in a row. They, They say that the generation X uses that punctuation more than any other generation because nobody's listening to Gen X anyway. I say that 
for my people. But this psalm ends in ellipse. Our lives are brief. Our lives are hard, dot, dot, dot. But Jesus is coming. He's making all things new. His life, his death, and his resurrection means that our short and brief life is not the last word. Rather, there is a second half of this story. He is making all things new. Jesus has defeated death on the cross. The cross where not only did he defeat death, but he covered all of our sins with his blood. And then three days later, he showed that death is no longer in charge when he rose from the grave. He is in charge now. And just as sure as he was resurrected, you and I will be resurrected alongside him one day. So then what do we do? We read this psalm and it's kind of bleak and it's kind of dark. And it says, it says that life is short and life is hard. What do we do? We take account of that. We pay attention to the fact that life is short. Life is difficult, but there is hope. We have hope that God will not only show his glorious powers in our lives, but in the lives that come after us through our children. And even if we don't have children, if we're a part of the church, all of those kids that you saw come down here, those are all your Godchildren. You committed and made promises to them. You're on the hook, but we get to see the faithfulness of God play out, not just in our day, but in the days of our children, the days that come after us. And so we soberly approach our lives because we know they're brief. But because they are brief, it means that what we do means something. What we do with the days that we are given matters. God has called you to wherever he has placed you for these brief days. You didn't luck into your job. You were sent by God there. Your office and your home were not places that you happened upon, but rather are God's preparation for where you are to live out these short days of your life. And so with each day, we have the bright hope that God is at work. Each new sunrise, each new dawn breaks with the anticipation that we are one day closer to the day where all the sad things come untrue. Day by day, step by step, we live out in faithfulness to God because God is going to establish the work of our hands. That's why Moses repeats that twice at the end of the psalm. He is saying in hope, this is what I am going to do. God is on the move. We labor not in vain. The resurrection is at work. It's at work in your home. The resurrection is at work in your office. The resurrection is at work in the parks and breweries of St. Petersburg, everywhere you go, everywhere you shop. So you don't have to resign. You don't have to give in to cynicism because hope prevails. Let's pray.